Good morning again, and I hope you're uh, feeling a bit warmer than what we were originally. I think I can feel the heat starting. Soon we'll be toasty, warm and all asleep, but I'll try to keep you awake with this sermon, okay? Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. read from verse 22 to 24 this morning. Read with me. It says here, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Let's uh, pray before we get into this message this morning. Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. Father, we thank you that uh, we have this opportunity once again to sit down in this peaceful environment, Lord, and to hear your word again. Father, I pray that our hearts would be open to your truth, that our minds would be receptive to the principles which you have in there and to the understanding that comes, Lord, from you. Father, we just pray that, uh, more importantly, that we would apply those truths that we learn to our own lives and indeed live them out. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless me as I deliver this message, that I might be a blessing to my brothers and sisters here. And may the Lord be our Lord and the Saviour be glorified through this message this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. During uh, the 16th century, there was a a king, uh, Philip of Spain, King Philip II, who didn't have a very good reputation. He was quite a nasty character. And he had conquered quite a large uh, portion of Europe. And the Dutch people came under that uh, particular rule of his. And during that 16th century, the Dutch people actually revolted. They, they rebelled against his rule. And, um, and he, so Philip sent a, a pretty large army to go and su- uh, suppress the rebellion. Now, Rotterdam held out for quite a time but eventually capitulated to the, to the strength of the actual army that he had sent. And after the uh, actual failure of this rebellion, the, 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 the soldiers which had been sent by King Philip um, were going house to house, um, uh, breaking down doors or knocking on doors, breaking in and, and, and basically doing some pretty nasty things to people, killing them and, uh, and uh, murdering the, the young men of the town and those sorts of things. And there was a group... There's a story about a particular group of men and women and children that were hiding in a corner house and they were waiting for these soldiers to come down the street as they were going house by house by house by house. And fear would have gripped their hearts. I mean, can you imagine being in a situation where you're, you're waiting for this door to break, to break down, not knowing what would be your end? So an idea came to one of the young men and he thought to himself, what can we do to stop them from, from coming in the house? So what they did, I think I might have told the story a long while ago. What they did is they, they took a goat and they slaughtered it. And what they did is they allowed the blood to fall on the actual floor of the house near the front door. And what they did is they then swept that blood under the door so it actually went out into the street. 
Now, what happened was, when the soldiers arrived at that particular door, one of the soldiers noticed the blood that had come out from the door, and they said, don't worry about this one, this has already been fixed up. Let's go to the next one. So the fact that they'd killed that goat and that blood that was actually pouring out from that, that front door, um, they, were able to, they were able to get saved because of the blood that was shed. So the blood beneath that door saved them. Great idea, huh? Good idea. Salvation was granted to them. Their freedom was brought, was bought sorry, because of that blood. And today we're going to be looking at the blood. You see, last week I looked at what? Do you remember what I looked at? It was the wounds. Okay? And I, um, we spoke about what those wounds represented. And when we looked at the wounds of Christ, they told a story. They actually spoke a certain, uh, they spoke certain things. And some of those things they spoke of was, was the, the fact that Jesus had kept his humanity. He didn't have to, but he chose to keep the humanity and, and, and have a body and be a, and, and make, be a man. They spoke uh, to the angels in heaven about God's great plan of redemption because the angels don't understand things such as you know, sin and, and those sorts of things. They, they, they're not privy to that. So they watch us as an example of what God's doing. So the blood of the, of, sorry, the wounds of Christ speak to them about God's amazing grace and about his love for humanity. They also speak, speak of the sufficiency of Christ's Sacrifice. In other words, when, they, when his sacrifice was made, God accepted that sacrifice. Because if he hadn't, he, he wouldn't. If God hadn't accepted Christ's sacrifice, he wouldn't have risen from that grave. The other beautiful thing is that Christ chose to keep those wounds when he didn't have to. And those wounds are a constant reminder even to him about the love that he has for us. So... We spoke about the, uh, the, the scars or the wounds that, that Christ has, even now in heaven. And at one point of the sermon uh, last week, I compared those wounds and the way they speak to the blood of Abel that was shed and how the blood of Christ actually speaks more and better things than that. So today I want to be looking at that in a bit more detail about now what the blood of Christ has done. Because as I spoke this morning... The way a person lives, the, what a person believes about what they have to do as a Christian will depend on what they believe Christ has done for them on the cross. See, if you don't believe that that, that sacrifice was sufficient for you, you will, try to, you will go back to what Paul says, the works-based salvation, when he berated the Galatians and said, who has bewitched you here? What... Who has caused you at one stage to think that you were saved by simply having faith in what Jesus has done for you to trying to keep the law yourself? And this is a, a challenge, even for our culture, even for any culture, because our own pride tells us we have to do it. We have to do it. So today I'd like to, us to look at what the blood of Christ has done for us. Because the blood of Christ indeed speaks better things than the spilt blood of Abel. Spilt blood of Abel was innocent blood that was shed and so was Christ. But Christ's blood has done so much more. And something interesting I found out in the Bible, you know that in the Bible we speak of the love of God. And the love of God is important, right? Very important. 
in the, uh, in the Bible. In the, in the whole scheme of things, it was God's love that sent his son to this world to save us. Now, there are 290 references to love in the Bible. 290 times it speaks of the love of God, which is a, quite a number, 300 times. But there are 1,300 references to the atoning blood. There are a lot of references about that blood and what it's done and what God expects that blood to do. So I'd like us to look at what the blood does for us. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, as we go back and do a little bit of foundational work and talk about what the blood did in the Old Testament. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. The Lord says, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh, with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, you shall not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of Man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, being, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Now God says in this particular passage over here, there is something special about blood. And he actually says that the life is in the blood. You might say, well, that's true in a sense, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you look at it logically, it's actually true. But you might say to yourself, well, but if my heart wasn't there, I'd be dead. If my brain isn't there, I'd be dead. There'd be a lot of other things that, that seem to connect with life as well. But God says, or God has blood as the life force of a person. And it actually makes sense because blood is an amazing thing when you think of it. When you actually look a little bit more about blood and its chemistry and what it actually does, um, it's absolutely amazing. Blood in our bodies contains all the nutrients and the oxygen that keep the whole body working. If you took our blood, you'd be, dead. You'd be obviously dead. But if there was no blood, your muscles couldn't work. You couldn't lift a finger because the, the blood carries the oxygen to your muscles to be able to work. It carries around the glucose. It carries around all the, the nutrients your muscles need to operate. It is absolutely vital for the running of your muscles. The lungs, in fact, we'll look, look at a few organs over here. And if, you, and if you look at the organs and what they do, they either require completely blood to just run or... They're there working on the blood to keep the blood filtered or whatever. So if you look at the lungs, what do the lungs do? You breathe oxygen into your lungs. Where do you think that oxygen goes? Into your blood. That's the point of your lungs. Your point, the, point, the whole purpose of your lungs is to breathe in oxygen so it can then be transferred to your blood. And your blood then carries oxygen around your body. What do your stomach and intestines do? They deliver the nutrients to your blood. 
to your blood then carry those nutrients to the rest of your body. What do your bones do? Your bones create even more blood. They actually create the blood in the marrow. What does your heart do? Your heart just pumps the blood around your body. That's all it does. It's just a pump. And it pumps the blood around your body. And when people die, people die of a heart attack, right? Because your blood stops circulating. If you could keep, I mean, there's, they're, they're, when they operate on a person with a heart problem, they've got a machine that, that keeps the blood flowing around the body. Okay, so your heart isn't even critical to, to you being alive. Because as long as you keep that blood moving in your body, as long as it's oxygenated and it has the nutrients it needs, you can make, stay alive for a very long time. So the blood is critical to life, and life is truly contained within it. We had the situation of Simon's dad a little while ago, who was losing blood internally. They couldn't put it in fast enough because it was, he was actually losing it. And if that, that continued, he would have died. And to shed blood in this particular passage means to take the life of someone. It doesn't just mean that you bleed and then you stop the, stop the bleeding. It actually means to take the life. So shed blood enough that, it, that, the, that the individual or the animal actually dies. And God says, if you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 17. So, all right, so, so God has told us that the life is in that blood. Now, now we'll see what God says, what that blood is able to accomplish or what he wants from that blood. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. It says there, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. There we go. Okay, so we know that again. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said unto the children of Israel, no soul of you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. God made a very specific commandment that people weren't to eat blood because it was so symbolic and it was so important in God's redemptive plan that you couldn't just consume it like that. And God says, I don't want you touching that. That's why to even today the Jews have a very special way of making sure that when an animal is slaughtered, that every drop of blood is out of that animal, that they're actually that blood is drained because they don't want to be guilty of consuming blood. Okay? But the point of this particular passage over here is that God says that the blood he gave as an atonement for sin. An atonement for sin. What is atonement? Well, basically, atonement is, an act of, is the act of basically wiping away or covering the sin so it's no longer there. Okay? So when Adam and Eve, for example, sinned, do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they try and cover themselves with? Was it fig leaves? Weren't they fig leaves? Anyone had? Everyone seen fig leaves? Have you ever felt fig leaves? They're quite itchy, wouldn't it? Anyway, what we do know about fig leaves, apart from being itchy, is they didn't do the job. God says God basically told Adam and Eve that fig leaves aren't doing anything for you guys. 
Because they were, see, they had sinned, and as a result of their sin, they suffered shame, which is the right attitude to have. It's shameful. Sin is a very shameful thing. But God said, the fig leaves aren't going to cover that shame. Let me do something for you. So what did God do? God actually slaughtered an animal. He shed its blood. And then he took the skin from that animal and made them clothes. So the act, the very first sin that was committed was covered by the blood of an animal. In fact, it was covered by the skin of the animal as well. So we learn very, very early what God's plan is for man. And that blood needed to be shed in order for sin to be covered. In order for sin to be done away with. So, in the same way, the blood was made to cover the sin of mankind. So when God instituted the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, God says, when you pour that blood out upon that altar, that blood will symbolise your sin being covered once again. But there's a problem. Because we know in the New Testament that the blood of animals is not sufficient to cover the sins of man. You see, if, as, as, as clean or as pure as the animal actually was, that blood could not properly and permanently cover the sin of man. It gave only a temporary covering. Okay? Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll just see that. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then, they not... For, for, for they would they... So, for then they would not have ceased to be offered... Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Alright, so what was it? What did it actually do then? What were all those animals that were slaughtered in the Old Testament there for? Well, they were there simply as a picture of the perfect sacrifice that would come and the blood that indeed would be shed, the blood that actually would be the perfect covering and permanent covering of an individual for their sins. The blood that was shed for the sins of man in the Old Testament pointed to the future perfect sacrifice that would make atonement for the sins of all men. And that was a sacrifice of blood of Christ on the cross. Let's look at what the blood of Christ has done for us. Okay, let's look at let's look at four main main things that the shed blood of Christ has done for us now. The first thing it does is it redeems us. It redeems an individual. The word redeemed means basically to buy back. Okay, or to, or to buy out. And the term was 
typically used, or is typically used in the, in the uh, Bible, to buy back a slave from someone. So if you were a slave, um, someone could pay for your freedom, basically, and release you from that slavery. Okay? Or you could be bought by someone else. So if you're a slave for someone, you could be bought, redeemed from someone else to yourself. Okay? Because a slave is what? A slave was an asset okay, to an individual. So it, it, it had value and you could be bought. So that's, that's, it's got that sense of it. The application of this term to Christ's death on the cross is quite telling. If we are redeemed, if the blood of Christ has redeemed us, and we'll look at the verse now in a minute, then what it's basically saying is that our previous condition was one of slavery. So before you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, you are a slave to someone. And that God has purchased our freedom by that blood to something else. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 we'll look at. And we'll have a look at this will be our first clue as to what we've been redeemed from. And it says here, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, in other words, you, you, you weren't redeemed with things of value on this earth, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now hang on a sec. So what's it saying we've been redeemed from here? Our vain conversation. I know plenty of vain conversations that happen every day around the place. Arguments and discussions that just go around in circles that don't go anywhere. Is it the conversation it's talking about? No, it's actually talking about your life, your, your lifestyle. And Paul, uh, Peter's saying over here that there was a particular lifestyle, there was a particular way of living and understanding, there was a particular worldview that, that people have that they've received from the traditions of their fathers, which was vain. In other words, absolutely useless. So it says that Christ's sacrifice or Christ's blood has redeemed us from a particular lifestyle or belief system that we had to something new. Now your belief system, your, the way you live, the conversation which you have, and that word conversation is just about the way you live around everyone else, Okay, is directed by what you believe and has certain consequences in the way you act with people. All right? Now vain, a vain lifestyle means what? A life with sin. A life where sin isn't dealt with. A life where that is not pleasing to God. And if your life isn't pleasing to God, then your life has sin in it. Now turn with me. So it basically says here that that blood has redeemed us from a vain lifestyle, a useless lifestyle that wasn't pleasing to God, to something else. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6.
It says here, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That beloved is Jesus himself. In whom we have redemption through his blood. There we go. So that once again, we've got redemption happening through the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Redemption means to buy back. Now, there's a lifestyle that we were living, that we were redeemed from, and there are certain things in that lifestyle that are synonymous with that lifestyle. And, and Paul confessed it as well, that the lifestyle he had before he counted as dung. And he was redeemed from that sinful lifestyle to a lifestyle of grace and forgiveness. So what are you redeemed from? You're redeemed from your sin. You are free from being a slave to a lifestyle that's epitomised by sin, to a lifestyle that's epitomised by grace and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're redeemed from. We are bought at one stage. We were slaves to Satan and sin. We were slaves to the flesh and the world. That was our lifestyle. That was what we typically lived, and that's what we all that's all we knew. That was our conversation in this world. Now we're actually being bought out of that. We've been the price has been paid. We have been rescued from that situation, and we've been given a new lifestyle now, which is not epitomized by sin anymore. It's, it's epitomized by the love of God. So, what can be so valuable? In this universe, that it could buy back the entire human race from this sinful condition and lifestyle. What could pay such a heavy debt that goes back to the Garden of Eden and counts every person that has ever existed and what they've done and what lifestyles they've lived? What is so valuable to, pay, to be able to pay for that and redeem from that? It's the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the most precious thing that you could ever imagine. To God it is, because God understands that his only begotten son shed that blood. And that blood is what saved you and me from eternal damnation. The blood redeems us. It frees us from the cruel slave master of sin. It also frees us from the condemning finger of the law. That law pronounced us guilty because we chose, the Bible says, we chose to put ourselves under sin, to become the servants of it. When, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they chose to sin, and by doing that, they became servants to sin. And every other man that's, and woman and child that's ever existed in history has a propensity to sin. Their natural state is to serve the flesh and sin. That's a natural state of man. So we had to be rescued and redeemed from that natural state and be given a new, what the Bible says, a new character, a new nature. That's what the Bible says, that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus because God had to plant something new in there. The old is no good. The, 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 our flesh cannot be redeemed. It has to be destroyed. That's why God had to plant. When he saves an individual, God plants a new nature in that person. And that's what we seek. When we come to church, when we read God's word, when we pray to the Lord, when we seek to grow, you know what we're growing? That new nature. 
You're not, you're not reforming your old nature. You're growing your new one. You and I now have two conflicting personalities within us. And God wants us to feed the new one that he's given us. And I've, I've often asked the question, I think I've probably asked it in church a couple of times here as well, which is the real me? Which is the real you? Is it the flesh? Is it the old me? Or is it the new me? Well, God's word says it's the new you. And the new you, once it's been planted, once it's taken root in your heart, that's it. It's there to stay. The real question is whether you feed the new you or whether you feed the old you. Because if you don't feed the, the new nature that God's given you, it doesn't grow. That's why, as a babe, we need the milk of God's word. And eventually, the milk has to turn to meat. You can't have milk for the rest of your lives. If you, have, you, know, if you see an adult walking around and all they drink is milk, there's something wrong, isn't there? Yet many Christians don't get past the milk phase. In fact... Many Christians aren't even being fed milk in the churches these days. More like skinny milk. Which is sad when you think of it. Because if you had a baby, a baby needs, a baby needs nutrients, doesn't it, to grow. Imagine if you fed your baby. Imagine Kelly and John, you know, we opened up the fridge and there was you know, row upon row of skinny milk and they're going <laughs> to feed Zoe skinny milk. Now how's Zoe going to grow? She's not. It's going to be deficient. So it's important for us to understand that we've been redeemed, saved from our old lifestyle to a new lifestyle, but that's because God's planted a new nature within us. And that's a nature that we, are, we try to develop and grow. That's why I'm here. That's why God's word is here. That's why we have church, because we're encouraging each other to keep persisting to feed the new one and starve the old one. Because if we keep feeding the old one, we keep having this, this huge battle that goes on. But if you starve the old one and feed the new one, then you know something? The new one takes precedence. If the old one starts to you know, stick up its ugly head, it just gets beaten down again. And that's when you start living a more mature and victorious Christian life. So, you can go into all different types of things over there. We can talk about uh, sanctification, but I won't. I won't. Okay, so we had chosen as people to put ourselves as slaves to sin. And God, through the sacrifice of, of Jesus on that cross, the shedding of that blood, redeemed us from that lifestyle and redeemed us from the slavery that we were in to a new position. Slaves to God. Servants of his. And not just servants, but children of his. So we have much to thank God for that. Because the law, when we put ourselves under the bondage of sin, the law automatically condemned us. All we deserved was hell. We chose to become the servants of Satan. And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm offering you to buy you back to me. God didn't have to save us. God sort of should have simply condemned us. And the law did. So when the God put his law up there, it was God's law that actually condemned you and I to hell. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus obeyed that law. He fulfilled every part of that law. And when he died, that was why he had a the sacrifice was sufficient for us. The law no longer condemns us because of what Christ did, because of that blood that was shed. 
So my question to you this morning is, have you received the full payment for your sins? Don't worry, the sermon's not finishing just yet. Have you received the full payment for your sins through the shed blood of Christ? Have you been redeemed? Do you know that? Do you know that you are no longer a slave to sin? You no longer need to serve sin. But if you have indeed been saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ, you have not just the ability, but you have the responsibility to live as a child of God and not as a slave of sin. We are now slaves to what the Bible says is righteousness. So if you haven't called on Christ today to save you, understand that you are still in bondage to sin. Your conversation naturally, your lifestyle naturally will always go back to sin. And you can't be saved. The choice is yours with that one over there. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 verse 3. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. This will just wrap this, this idea up for us just to, at this stage. It says, even so we, now listen, watch this, listen this carefully. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That's what God has done for us. God has redeemed us from bondage to this world and has freed us to become his children again. That's what, the, that's what that shed blood has done for us. We are free now to be slaves to righteousness, to goodness. That should be our natural state now. And if it's not, it means that we're feeding the flesh too much. It means that we're giving it too much liberty. It means that we're either feeding the flesh too much and not feeding our spirit enough. So the question is, if you're struggling with your walk, there's either two things that are happening or a mixture of both. You're not feeding your new nature enough. You're not committing to serving God enough. You don't understand what God requires of you, and you need to understand what the Bible says about that. Likewise, if your flesh is a bit too strong and you struggle with it and it seems to have dominion over you and it seems to have too much of a saying what you do when you struggle with that, then there are two possibilities. First possibility is you may never have been redeemed. The second possibility is that you've allowed it to grow too big. You haven't killed it. You see, you know when the Bible says that we had to die daily, we had to die to ourselves. That, that happens daily. Every morning we, we wake up, the flesh wakes up with us. It needs to be put back in its place each and every day. Because if I don't put that, that thing down each and every day and I allow it to grow into a, a bigger and something bigger and bigger, it will come back and bite me. 
there's an Italian saying that I think I've shared with you before, and it says that things that, and it sounds probably better in Italian than English, um, things that are allowed to, to go on and on, or things are allowed to grow, turn into serpents. In other words, if you've got a little problem, but you let it go for a really long time, it'll turn into a serpent and it'll come back and bite you. It'll become a much bigger problem later on. And that's what the flesh is like. If you ignore it, if you think that it's not going to do anything to you, if you don't actively kill it every day and feed that spiritual part of you that God's planted there, then it will one day rear its ugly head and cause problems. So the first thing that the blood of Christ done is it redeems us. The second thing it does, turn to Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The second thing that it does, it first of all redeems us, it buys us back from a lifestyle of sin into a new lifestyle of freedom. Next thing it does, it actually cleanses us from every sin and stain. It's a cleaner. I mean, I work for a cleaning company and there are some products that we use which are absolutely fantastic. They clean really well. There are other products that don't work good at all. But you know something? The best cleaning agent the universe has ever seen is the blood of Christ. It can clean a stain that's been there sitting in your heart from when you were five years old or ten years old. Ever tried taking a stain out of a cup that's been there for a couple of years? It doesn't work. But God can take away stains and sins from, a human, from the human heart that have been there for ages and ages. And he can redeem and clean you perfectly. Now that's a good cleaning agent. And that's what the blood of Christ does. It cleanses us from all of our sins. And that's probably the thing we hear about the most. The blood of Christ washes away our sins. I remember having a discussion with a Catholic priest once concerning a person's sins and, and how they're removed. And, and, and he attempted to explain to me how sins are removed by the waters of baptism. Right. So when they, when they sprinkle that bit of water on your head that it takes away sin... And he also included that the blood of Jesus takes away sin. And then he also included that, you know, when you give money to a church called indulgences, that takes away sin as well. And that prayers from other people take away sins. And there's all types of things that, that take away your sins. It's an amazing thing because all those things put together, right, according to, to the, uh, the Catholic tradition, you don't know whether your sins have been forgiven or not. You don't even know whether you will go to heaven or whether you won't. Now, the sad thing is with all of that is that it's completely confusing. What takes away your sin? You know what the Bible says takes away your sin? One thing. And one thing alone. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin. All those other things might picture that. All those other things might, might be there as symbols of certain things. Like baptism. Baptism is only a symbol. When, a person, when we dunk a person under the water here at church and we lift them back up if they survive... It doesn't wash away any of their sins. 
That should have happened before they got baptised. So, the Bible simply says that the blood of Christ cleanses from sin and nothing else. Water never cleanses from sin. Money, I'm sure, never cleanses from sin. That's why we can sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. A teacher once asked a class, is there anything that God can't do to a student? To which a student replied, yes, he can't see my sins through the blood of Jesus. That's a good response, isn't it? Because God says that your sins will be cast as far as the east is from the west. And God's, that's God's way of saying, I no longer see them. They no longer exist for me. So when the blood of Christ covers your sin, God does not see sin anymore in you. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. It blots out all stains and it makes us clean and fit children of God. So my question to you this morning is, have your sins been forgiven? Has the blood of Christ been applied to your heart to cleanse those sins? Because if you haven't, and if, or if you're not sure, the blood of Christ is available for you today. That blood that was shed 2,000 years ago is available for you today, for your sins to be cleansed. You no longer have to carry your stain, your sin, your shame. You can be made clean today. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, we no longer need to hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve with the shame of a sin that we bore. We no longer need to, to, be, to run away from God because we have a complete covering. Are you ashamed? Do you bear sins? Then bring it to the foot of the cross. Bring them to Jesus and understand that that sin or that, that blood that he shed cleanses from every sin and stain and move on. Forsake those things. Forsake them because God has called you to a much higher life than that. That's why 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood continues to cleanse from sin. There is no sin that, is not a, that, it, that can't be cleaned. The continual cleansing that a Christian receives comes from simply walking in God's light, walking in God's truth. If you walk in God's truth and you have fellowship with God, God God's, the blood of Christ continues to cleanse you from sin. It's an ongoing process too. You know, Jesus knows all of our faults. When I was speaking with that young man before, he wasn't aware of his own faults. I saw things in him that he didn't see himself. And isn't that a problem that we all have? That it's easier for us to spot the sins and the weaknesses in other people. It's easier for us to see other people's faults, isn't it? It's altogether a lot harder for us to see our own faults. <clears throat> so the question, <coughs> the problem that we have is that when we approach the throne of God, because the heart is deceitful above all things, we come to him thinking that we might even be all right. 
But yet there may be pride, envy, jealousy, those sorts of things lurking within us. And no doubt there probably are parts of our, of our character that God needs to continue refining. But the question is, this is, this is where the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. This is why we can have confidence. Because even though I'm different today than I was 10 years ago, and when I look back 10 years ago, I thought, how could it be like that? Yet 10, 10 years ago, I thought I was all right. And in 10 years from now, I'll probably look back at my life now, the way I, the way I act, the way I think, and I might probably say to myself, and I hope I do, you know something? How come you were thinking like that? You should, be, you should have been better than that. But you know something? As much as I, I hate to say it, right? I'm not perfect right now. And there are things that I know that are in my character that God definitely needs to work with. Now, there are things that I don't know. There are things that in my character, there are things that exist that I don't know about that God is still working with. He knows them. But the confidence I have is that even though I don't know them, that blood has got those things covered already. Because if I died today, okay, not knowing that there were certain things in my character that were still not suitable, I can still have confidence because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And even though he's refining me and working with me, and that thing is a process that takes days and weeks months and years and sometimes I feel myself too thick in the head for God to deal with me but the beautiful thing is that God is patient so the blood of Christ continues to work on us it continues to cleanse us it continues to refine us Okay. next thing it does third thing it does the blood of Christ brings us near the blood of Christ brings us near. Turn back to, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. The blood of Christ brings us near. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says that at that time... You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off or far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So the blood of Christ brings Two parties that were once alienated from each other together. It brings us closer to God. At one stage we were running away and very far from God. The Bible says here that we were strangers from the covenants of promise. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Having no hope and without God. Whereas now we have hope. We have been included. We are close to God. The blood of Christ brings a person closer to God, It breaks down that barrier that existed. The bar not the barrier that God put up, the barrier that we put up. It's through the blood of Christ that we can now have a relationship with God. 
a relationship not just as friends or acquaintances, a relationship of family. We were once his enemies. We hated God. Whether you understand that or not, the Bible says that we were once his enemies. We refused to live for him. We refused his, his, um, his principles. We refused his laws. We refused his, who he was. We rejected him. We wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, we fought against him. Whether you understand that or not, we actually fought against God within our minds and with our words and our actions. We fought against him. And then God changed that whole thing around and made us his children. The blood of Christ, when it's applied to a person's soul, their sins are washed away and they now have a relationship with God. And not just that. It causes us to have a relationship with one another. See, what didn't exist before now exists. I know you all personally now. Some of you better than others. But God has made us family now. Understand that. God has actually made us family. That's why when we... You can go across the world and fellowship with some, another Christian over there and you immediately sense a connection. That's one of the most beautiful things that God has done. He's not only reconciled us to himself, but we're all strangers to each other. God has actually brought us together in a family that I can worship and, and have a, 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 an intimate connection with someone from any part of the world, from any culture. If they, they call the name of Christ and they serve him, there is an immediate bond there. There is something that the world cannot even understand. And God has made that. So God has brought us near to himself through that blood and has brought us close to, to each other. And you always say, I'm not sure if it's an Italian saying, but you know something that, that blood is thicker than water, don't you? That's said for a reason. Because we have been, through that blood, we've been made the same family. And families are connected by blood. So we are part of the family of God. Because if the Bible says you are in Christ, you are in him, then you are part of him and we are part of one another. So the blood of Christ brings us near to God and to each other. And finally, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And we'll close up with this final point. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath to come. We have been justified. Now who understands what the word justification is? Put up your hands if you know what that means. And if you put up your hand, I'm going to ask you for a definition. Oh, look, not, not one person put up their hand. Look at this. Not, oh, we've got it. The, the, the principal of the Bible college has put up his hand. Isn't it nice? I won't ask you. That's okay. Basically, like it's a very simple idea. To be justified simply means that when you stand before God, you are just in his sight. There is nothing against you. You are righteous in front of God. So God, when he looks at, looks at you and me, if you've been saved by the blood of Christ, you have been declared by an, a royal decree. You are right. You are just. You are righteous. You're, you're, 
Can you think of that idea? Have you got that in your heads? That you and I have been justified by the blood of Christ. Justified. There are no more charges against you and me. Any charges that were laid against us have now been dropped and dealt with. We can't be dragged into God's eternal court and have crimes charged against us. He's dealt with them completely. The charges have been paid for and they've been dealt with. Justified simply means that I and you can stand before God. And he, when he looks at me, he sees me as just. That's what the blood of Christ has done. And when you stand just before God, you can have peace with him. Because if you're a guilty criminal, you can't stand before God. You'd rather run the other way. You'd rather ignore him. You'd rather um, not be there or not face him one day. But Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only can a man be justified and say and stand before God and say, Here I am, God. And God says, Yes, I accept you because of that blood that was shed. You are just in my sight. You are right. Not only that, but I can have perfect peace with him. No more wars, no more running, no more struggling. A person can have complete peace with God. Which gives you boldness as well, doesn't it? You know, if you are just... That's why the Bible says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Do you know, in the Old Testament, could they enter into the holiest? Could the average man walk into the holiest place? No. The holiest place was only for one person. That was the high priest. And he could only go in there once a year. And then before he went in, he had to perform all these rituals and, and cleanse himself and all that sort of stuff. Because if he did anything wrong he probably wasn't going to walk out of that room. That's how scary it was. The Bible says that we are in such a position now as the high priest was in the Old Testament that we have boldness to walk from the, outer court, from the outside world to the outside court because the temple was in three parts. You had the outer, the inner, and the holiest of holies. Right? We have, the Bible says, the boldness to walk in from the outside into the outer court, into the inner court, right into God's presence. That's boldness. But you can only have that boldness not because of what you've done, not because of what, have I've, what I've done or I've deserved any part of that, but it's because of what was done for me. That's what gives us the boldness. And it's not that boldness, don't equate that boldness with arrogance. Never mix those two things up. Boldness does not mean arrogance. Boldness means confidence. You can confidently go in front of God and say, God, I have a petition of you. We can do that because of what Jesus did on that cross, that blood that was shed. So, can you think of anything else in this entire universe that can provide you more benefit than that blood that was shed for you? Because I can't. The blood redeemed us. It cleansed us. It brings us near to God and it justifies us before God. Hey, that's a lot of things for one particular thing to do. And you know something? 
we'd be making a massive mistake if we forgot one simple thing. Because the tendency is to look at blood and disassociate it with the one who carried that blood. You see, that blood ran through the veins of my Saviour. That blood was flowing in his veins. And that blood that I claim for myself was giving, was giving him life. That was his life that he carried. You can't disassociate the blood that was shed. Because it rolls off the tongue very easily, doesn't it? The blood that was shed at Calvary's cross and all this sort of stuff there. But hey, you know something? That was Jesus. That blood wasn't given at a blood bank where coffee and biscuits were had after. It wasn't that. It was spilled through great suffering. Suffering that was born. Shame that was endured. Sorrow that I can't even understand that he went through. That blood was able to accomplish so many wonderful things only because it was carried by a wonderful man. Yeah, the blood is wonderful, but the man was wonderful. And it was his blood. That name, the Bible says, which is above every name. He loved me so much that he allowed his blood to be spilt for me. Despite my shameful condition. Despite the fact that I had chosen to walk in sinfulness in this world. That I was sold out to sin. That I was an enemy of God. The Bible says that he allowed sinful men like me to actually shed his blood. So it may as well have been me. But that blood has done so many wonderful things. But it was he that redeemed me. It was he that cleansed me from my sin. It was he that took me by the hand and brought me near to the Father. It was he that declares me right before God. It was him. If you haven't received that blood this morning, if you have not understood what it really means that he shed his blood for you today, then ask him to save you. Because it's him, only him that can save you. Only he, our Lord Jesus Christ, that can actually save you from your sin, give you a new nature, make you a new person. If you haven't received his forgiveness, turn to him now. Ask him to apply that blood to your life. To cancel every record of sin and shame that you bear now. And be completely free to love and serve him. And if you are saved, have you understood what he's done for you? Have you lost track of it? If not, spend time in God's word. Submit yourself under his awesome hand. His infinite mercy and love. And understand more and more. Ask him to reveal to you those things. Meditate on the wonderful things that God has done for us. We can't go deep enough. You can't spend too much time thinking about God. You can't delve. You can't dive deep enough to, to get everything out. But the more we do, the better it is. The more we understand, the better we are as people. Think about what Christ has done by shedding his blood for you. My challenge to you today is, what would you do in response to that? Now, there's a song we sang yesterday.
which is a chorus, which I haven't sung for a very long time. Who knows his name is wonderful? You know? Can we stand up together and sing that song and then we'll, we'll close in a word of prayer? We'll just sing it a cappella. We'll just sing the song and I want you to, to think about what Christ's blood has done for you today. And if you, you're not sure, please come and speak to me or someone else who can share that, that hope with you. Okay? Let's sing. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, he is the mighty King, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus, my Lord. He is the great shepherd, the rock of all ages. Almighty God is He. Bow down before Him, love and adore Him. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. Pray. Father, we do thank You for this time. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness and love that our Saviour showed us by going all the way to Calvary's cross and shedding his blood for us. Father, that we will live lives that honour that sacrifice that was made for us. That we will live lives that are worthy of that calling which we were called. Father, that we would appreciate the blood that was spilled for us. That we would put Jesus first in every part of our lives. That it be nothing in our hearts, Lord, that that cause your name to be blasphemed. That in every possible way we would honour our Saviour and Father, that your name would be glorified. As we depart today, if there are any here, Lord, I just pray that you would convict their hearts, that they would turn from their sin and they would accept the wonderful sacrifice that was made for them. And if there are any here who are struggling, Lord, I pray that they would apply that blood to their heart that they would understand what was done for them and they would be able to come before your throne in confidence, knowing that that blood is powerful. We thank you once again for this time. We ask that you bless us now as we spend some time in fellowship together and for our business meeting as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.